Well, we are in John chapter 15. If you would just uh, open your Bibles and keep your marker there as we intend to work through that passage together. Um, I'd like to pray and ask God that He would be with us in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would worship well through the receiving, the hearing, and the teaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, last week we talked through your word as you told the disciples, unless they abide in you, they will not be able to do anything. We know that that means anything that would be supernatural. Father, we long to be a people who live supernatural lives in the power of the Holy Spirit that you would be made much of for our good and for the sake of the nations. And so, Father, would you come now in a special way. We trust and we hope in you and in you alone that you would meet us here, that you would do the work that your word and your spirit need to do in our hearts and lives. We pray all of this in the precious, matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So as you've heard the reading in John 15, 12 through 17, right there at the beginning of verse 12, there's a commandment to love one another. So to... To get us started, briefly with an intro, Todd and Philip <clears throat> sat down at breakfast. It was their usual day and uh, a favorite morning spot that they would meet before work. They were good friends and had been meeting together for the last few years for breakfast, for friendship and for Bible study. On this day, Todd noticed that Philip seemed to be ready to pop. He had something on his chest that was not going to stay there long, and so Todd braced emotionally for who knows what. And Philip said, Todd, we're leaving the church. Called off guard, Todd asked, Philip, why? What's got you so upset? Philip said, we've never been that excited about the people or the programs, and for that matter, the pastor. Philip said, we love you and Karen, but there are some things in the church, and there are some people in the church that we just feel like are hypocrites. He said, my son plays basketball with the Turner boy. And his dad is an embarrassment to Christ each week as he screams at the refs during the basketball game. And he said, I don't know if you know this, but the Smith's marriage is falling apart. He's cheated on her. And, and frankly, these things shouldn't be in the church. Do you and others not see the problems here? Can't you see the hypocrisy? Philip said, Todd, we're just two different types of church members. 
Why do you think we have such a difference of perspective? Todd says to Philip, Karen and I expect people to be and act like sinners. We feel it is our responsibility as church members to pray, to labor, to serve, and to love them into maturity. He told him, he said, you know, 2 Corinthians 12, 5 says, we will gladly spend and be expended for your souls. So we don't believe that just because we see the problems that you see in our church, that that means we should leave the church. It's really more of an opportunity for us to roll up our sleeves and love people in a biblical way. This is in line with our text today. It's the second time that Jesus has commanded his followers to love one another. In John 13, 34, he said, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. He, he goes on to say, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. The context, as we talked about last week, is Jesus' words here to the disciples. Some of the theologians call it the farewell discourse. And he's coming down in John 14, 31. Jesus says, come, let's go. And so they get up from the upper room and they walk down out of the building into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's probably there that Jesus has stopped. He's grabbed a, a, a vine and he's telling them, I'm, I'm the vine, you're the branches. My father's the vine dresser. And after he finishes telling them about abiding, he says, and look with me if you would, at John 15, 12 through 13. He says this, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, just to kind of help you remember the context, is it is only hours before Jesus, when Jesus says this, it's a matter of hours, not days even, that he's going to go to the cross and he's going to lay down his life for these men that he's just told this to. And not only those men, but for you and me if we're followers of Jesus Christ. The command is that we love one another, but then it's also interesting, he says, as I have loved you. And we're going to talk about how has Jesus loved us. Look at, uh, well, you can turn if you'd like to 1 John 2, 9 through 11. 1 John 2, 9 through 11. There Jesus said, or John is writing, he says, same author of the Gospel of John over in 1 John. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. As Christians, we have an obligation to love everyone. But it is interesting in Galatians 6.10, and I'll just read it to you. We have a special obligation to love those that are in the church. In Galatians 6.10 it says, So then, we, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and get this, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us do good to everyone, but especially those who are of the household of the faith. So there's this extra peace that Jesus is saying, it's important to do good, but it's even more important to do good to those that are in the faith. So the question that I had in my study was, what does it mean to love your brother or sister in Christ? Practically, let's put some teeth to that. What does it mean to love them? And it's, uh, how did Christ love us. So again, in 1 John 3.16, how did Christ love us? It says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He laid down his life for us. We should lay down our lives for each other. Now, we know in most cases, it's not saying that I, Clint Watson, need to go to the cross for you like Jesus went to the cross for us. <clears throat> so what could it mean? And I think that if we were willing to lay down our lives, it at least means that we are going to relinquish some of our preferences and some of our rights as we relate to one another in the body of Christ. Look at uh, Philippians 2, 3 and 4 as it relates to loving one another as Christ has told us. And this is, this is uh, Paul talking about Christ's model. And he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility, count others more, and more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Interest and rights, I think, are first cousins. They're intimately related. And the right that we feel often, there's several of it. I'll give you a few examples so it helps it kind of put it in your court and help you understand it. I think we all feel this right to spend our free time any way we choose. That's our right. But as believers, maybe not so fast. We are stewards of God's time. 
And he has given this time to us for a reason. Another right that we may have is the right to spend our money however we like. But here's where it gets crazy again. As Christians, it's not even really our money. It's God's money. And we are to steward that carefully and surrender our right to that. Or maybe, and this one, one kind of comes closer to home, but it's not just about First Baptist Chattahoochee. This is about churches all over the country. There are churches all over the country that are going through what some writers call worship wars. And it has to do with the right to have my preferences of music played at my church. It's not just about the younger generation or about the older generation. It's, I want it done my way. I want what I like. And sometimes people will even elevate that from a preference all the way up to a principle. Like, drums are from hell. That's the demon. And I'm like, "Uh, I don't really think that's true. I think that's a little bit more about your preference than what's reality. And so we have these rights and we can elevate them to make our point. I have a right to choose my friends. Or I have a right to punish you by withholding relationship if you hurt me. I have a right to punish you by withholding relationship if you hurt me. This is selfish. That's what that is. Jesus didn't do this. And he says, you should love one another as I have loved you. So how do we do that? That's hard. That's really hard. I admit, I, uh, the older I get, the crankier I get. It's like Peggy says, we're going to go to this party or we're going to go to this thing. Or I know I, maybe it's not she's telling me I got to go, but I know I got to go. And in my spirit, there's a grumbling. There's a, I don't want to do that. I just want to sit here and relax in my air condition. Atlanta's hot in August, and I'm going to have to go out there. I'm going to be sweating all over the place, and i got to act like I'm nice, and I'm really not. And, you know, that's my flesh. But you know, you know how we love one another? And I think, honestly, I could have summed up the whole thing this way is we die to ourself and we die. The the reason I don't love you like I should, if I want to just cut to the chase, is because I love me so much. I love my preferences. I love my rights. I love my comfort. I love my money. I love my time way more than I love you. And I don't think I'm alone in that. And so the scriptures are telling us We must die to ourselves. 1 Peter says it this way. In uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 18, it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Don't get hung up on the servants and masters thing for the sake of this. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
For this is a gracious thing. And I want you to catch this part right here. How do we die to ourselves? This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. I think the only way for me to really die is when I'm mindful of God. And being mindful of God, I'm able to transfer my rights to Christ and entrust myself to Him. And when I entrust myself to Him, let's say Peggy has asked me to go to uh, something on a August hot day, and uh, we're going down there, and in my spirit, I'm grumbling, and I'm thinking, man, I wish I didn't have to do this. And what I do in my heart, if I'm walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, if I'm abiding in Christ, is I say, Lord, you know I don't want to do this in my flesh. Would you come and help me right now? I choose to die to my will. I'm choosing right now, Father, to die to what I want, that you could live your life through me. Would you help me do that? Amen. And now I act on that. That's abiding in Christ. That's practically abiding in Christ. So, if we cannot die to ourselves and entrust ourselves to Him, we're going to have friction. Not only in the church, but we're going to have friction in our marriage. We're going to have frictions in our families because what Christ is calling us to is ultimately joy. He's calling us to joy and satisfaction and fullness and goodness. When he's calling you to die to yourself, it is a call to joy. Now, if you decide you're going to just live for yourself and live for your preferences and hold on to your rights, I guarantee you that is going to take you down a path that one day when you're old and gray, you're going to say to yourself, I missed it. Life was about giving, not taking. I missed it. Our contact with fellow Christians is the school in which God begins to train us to lay down my life. In other words, the church is God's training ground for me to learn how to let go and to die. And to lay down my life, not just as a uh, martyr, but because that's going to bring me the ultimate joy. It's going to bring a fullness and a significance and a richness to my life that I could never have apart from him. But this is the problem, isn't it? It takes great humility on all sides. All people must come to the conflict more concerned about being holy and honoring God than getting their way or their preference or being right. And if you're like me, I have seen in conversations that I can be really passionate about winning the argument and being right. I've got truth. I've got being right 
on my side. And maybe I win that argument, but you know what I've lost? I wasn't holy. I wasn't like Christ. Yeah, I won the argument, but I lost. And it separated me in my relationship and my fellowship with God. And now I've broken that fellowship. And it's alienated me from my father. So it is my conviction that God is using marriages. These three things are his, his uh, backhoe to do the deepest work in your life when it comes to being pure and holy. Your marriage, your family, and your church. Because those are the places that you're going to hit conflict and you're going to have to be humble and you're going to have to work through things with other people. And that's what it means to love one another. She's smiling at me. Or at least I want to believe she is. <clears throat> Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're asking the question, what does it mean to love one another as Christ has loved us? A lot of you know this is the chapter on love. You can, you can have everything and be a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. The mark of a believer, Jesus says, is that we'll love one another. And so at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, love is patient and kind. You know what? Someone that is not loving, they're not patient. How patient are you? That's convicting for me, honestly. Love is patient and kind. How kind are you when it's not going your way? I'm not talking about can you be kind on Sunday morning when you come in here and you see everybody and you shake their hand and, oh, it's so great. And then, But the truth is, y'all know this, when you get home and it isn't going your way and somebody crosses you, at that moment, are you going to choose to be kind? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Uh-oh. Love does not insist on its own way. I don't pass that test all the time. It is not irritable or resentful. Matter of fact, the older I get, I feel like the more I struggle with being irritable. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The reason I started with the intro that I did is this. I think the answer to the dying church in America, and if you don't realize this, churches all over our country are closing their doors, selling their buildings, being scraped, and other buildings are going up in their place that are not churches. Hundreds of thousands of churches every year in America are closing their doors. We can blame it on secularism. We can blame it on the government. We can blame it on all kinds of things. But I think the answer is found in our text. And I also think the answer is found for you and me every day when I look in the mirror. 
Are we obeying the command to love one another? Are we the type of people that are self-sacrificing, that we come and we live supernatural lives among one another, not natural lives, but supernatural lives where we are patient and kind. We give the benefit of the doubt. We do not boast. We're not rude. All of these things are the ways that Christ loved us. When we insist, when we insist on our rights, especially in the church, it's just worldly. It's just worldly. It's no different, you know, really than a country club. In a country club, you pay your membership dues, and now you have the right to challenge and demand and get your preferences. And what I have found is the seed or the soil of the country club gets transplanted into the church often. And what happens is you pay your tithe and you feel like, well, I should get my preference. But the church is just the opposite. In the church, we come to give. We come to sacrifice. We come to worship. And the more we sacrifice... The more we give of our wants, the more we put others in front of ourselves, the more we make much of Christ. Our dying to ourselves says to others in the church and to a lost world that Jesus is better, that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is worthy of my surrender. He is worthy of my dying to my preferences. So I want to surrender. I want to give. I want to sacrifice. The great call of Christianity is not come so you can get all your desires met. It is a call to come and die to yourself and to live for Christ and to live for his kingdom. The churches in our country that are dying are demanding their preferences. The churches in our country that are thriving are surrendering and sacrificing. They're letting go. They're dying to self. And what they're finding is deep joy and satisfaction in the letting go. So we, we get to surrender and die to ourselves. It honors the Lord, and he blesses the obedience. And here's uh, a word for us at this church. The diversity that we have will demand sacrifice and dying to self. But the diversity that, that we want so that we can reflect our community will only happen if we're willing to let go and die to ourselves. It will only happen if we are willing. Now, John 15, 14 through 15. Look with me back in the text as we work through this section. He says, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. 
But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Obedience and faith are closely linked all over the Scripture. How do we make sense of that? Because it looks like if you just read that text, you are my friends if you do what I command. There's a big if in there. You're not my friends, you could say, if you don't do what I command. So to me, this feels at just if you're not careful when you're reading it, that basically these works must be done for you to be his friend. You must do these works. So what is really going on there? I would describe it this way, and I did similarly maybe a couple of weeks ago. You go to the doctor, and he sits you up on the table, and he gets out his little rubber mallet that he uh, is going to tap on your knee with. And when he taps on your knee, if you still have reflexes, I realize some of us in the room probably don't, but, uh, and I'm not poking at you. I don't know if I have them either. But if you have good reflexes, when he taps the right spot, you, your knee jerks and your uh, foot comes up. What I think Jesus is saying in this text is if the Father and I touch your heart, we take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, then it is like the hammer hitting the reflex in the knee, you will do good works. It will just be natural. It'll be a reflex. So you don't prove that you love God by your good works. You do good works because you are God's. And I think that's what Jesus is saying in our text, is when I touch your heart, the natural flow, outflow of that will be good works. So if in the text is not saying, if you do all these things, I'll be your friend. That's the way the world works. And we all know it. If I do this for you, you'll be my friend. If I help you make money, you'll be my business partner. God is not saying that. That's not the gospel of grace. And then it says, we are no longer slaves, but friends. Back to that verse. We are no longer slaves, but friends. And here, William Barclay writes, this phrase, no longer slaves, but friends, is lit up by custom practiced at the court's both in Rome with Roman emperors and with kings in the Middle East. At these courts, there was a very select group called the Friends of the King or the Friends of the Emperor. At all times, they had access to the king. They even had the right to come to the bedchamber at the beginning of the day, and he talked to them before he talked to his generals, his rulers, and his statesmen. The friends of the king were those who had the closest and most intimate relationship with the king. So Jesus is saying, you're no longer slaves, but you're my friends. And friends have 
privileged information. God and the Father and the Son give them divine truth. You'll have divine truth because we will meet with you as friends and not simply as slaves. It's interesting that he's saying that right on the heels of saying, if you obey, if you obey my commandments. So he's basically saying, because you're my friends, I'm going to give you this truth. And then John 15, and these are the last two verses of our text, 16 and 17. Look there with me. It says, Jesus is telling them, he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Typically in Hebrew culture, the disciple would choose his rabbi, his teacher. So Jesus is saying, contrary to culture, I chose you. You didn't choose me. So that's the the interesting cultural piece of that. Normally, the disciple would choose his rabbi. So here, Jesus is saying, we did it just the opposite. I chose you. You didn't choose me. My choosing of you, and this is what I think Jesus is saying, gives you great confidence that you can go and you're going to bear fruit. And your fruit is going to remain. If, if you had chose me, I don't know that that would necessarily be true. But because I chose you, and because I'm the God of the universe, and because I've told you that if you'll abide in me, I'll live my life through you. Now, because I chose you, you can go and bear great fruit. Now, to me, this is powerful. Because they're in a moment... This is the farewell disclosure where Jesus is telling them, I got to go. I'm going to be crucified. All these horrible things are going to happen. Peter, you're going to deny me. Um, All this bad stuff's about to happen. And now he's saying, but I chose you. And because I chose you, you're going to bear fruit. You're going to make a difference for all eternity. Your life is going to be able to leave an eternal legacy because I chose you. And I'm going to do a work through you. So it's a great comfort that he's trying to give them to say, I chose you for great things. And I would tell you, Christian, if you truly know the Lord, this is a word to you. If you abide in him, you can and will bear much fruit to his glory. Why? Well, obviously, you're great. No, that's not the answer. Obviously, he's great. 
And as I abide in him and he lives his life through me, I bear much fruit to his glory. So the key to this is this abiding. It's the abiding. But here's the thing. Remember in the context of all of this, he's saying love one another. You want to know what will cut off the branch from the vine? Not loving one another. If we cannot love one another despite our minor differences and surrender our preferences and yield to one another and consider other more important than ourselves, as Philippians says, then the fruit will stop. We at First Baptist Chattahoochee long to be a healthy, vibrant, growing church on the west, upper west side of Atlanta. You know what will stop that in its tracks? If we don't love each other. If we don't yield our rights to each other and say, you know, you're more important than me. It'll kill it. It'll kill it. And then finally, <clears throat> there is and the air cooperated. There is a deeper importance in this text, and I'm, I'm not going to camp out on it today, but I want to say, because it's here, it says, if you read our text again, John 15 and 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit should remain. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. There's verses all over the scriptures that deal with this idea. And even in the Gospel of John, where he says in John 6, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And then John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What I'm saying is this, and I want to be really careful how I say it. To be God, think, just think with me just logically. To be God, and the scriptures say this all over the place, is to be sovereign. And the word sovereign, if that word throws you at all, is just he's in control of all things. Think about it like this. He could not be God if he wasn't in control of all things. Being God is being in control. It is being sovereign. And so... If there is a being or a person in the universe that is 100% absolutely independent of God, God's not in control. God's not sovereign. How could he be? How could that be? If you just think about it logically and rationally. God could not be God if he's not sovereign. And so, 
Here's a question for you, and I think this is a penetrating question. What would you say to God at the judgment if he asked, why did you believe in my son while others didn't? Why did you believe in my son while others did not? And I think how we answer this question says something about our understanding of the very nature of the gospel. So let me take a stab at it. I might say, I might say this, okay? I knew that you were the holy creator. God, I knew that you were the giver and sustainer of life. That's my first statement. Second statement. I recognized my sin made me a rebel to you and to your kingdom. That's my second statement. My third statement is, I trusted Christ for my salvation and forgiveness of sin. And then my fourth statement, I repented and I obeyed your commandments. That all sounds actually pretty good. (laughs) Would that be wrong? No. No, I think that's, that's all good. That's, that's what should happen on this side. And, uh, and that's our responsibility as human beings in response to the truth of the gospel. But what I'm saying to you is that under all of that, and I think that's what our text is saying, you did, I chose you, you didn't choose me. Under all of that, The Bible is teaching that God is sovereign and that he chooses us. It's in the text. Do I fully understand it? No way. I can't get my head around that. But think about it. If you were completely independent and you could do whatever outside of God's sovereignty and his his uh, control, God no longer is God. He's not in control. So somehow there is great mystery here that I don't think anyone on this planet can explain. But if I don't give God that he is sovereign, that that's just part of being God, then I don't think I've got the answer right. So here's, here's the question again, and here's my other answer. So why did I believe in his son while others did not? Why did I believe in God when other people did not? The temptation is to believe, well, I saw the truth, and I responded in faith. And that's not necessarily wrong. What I'm saying, though, that is even under that and humbling Deeply humbling is this. Grace alone. Had not God done something to help me see it, I would not have seen it. It is grace alone. It is grace alone. This grace initiated by him, and this is why I wanted you to get it, and this is why I think Jesus is saying is the anchor for my soul. 
you didn't choose me. I chose you. I'm God. I'll hold you fast. I'll bring you home. If you chose me, you'd probably mess it up. But I won't mess it up. I'm God, and I'm sovereign, and I will bring you home. You see, that's a precious truth. If we are his, and we realize he's sovereign, Philippians 1.6 teaches us he will make it whole. He will bring us home if we are his. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the reality of your sovereignty that you are God and you alone are God. We are grateful and we wish to tell you that. Father, would you use these next moments as we remember you through the elements? Uh, Would you speak to us? Would you minister to us? Would we uh, make much of you? I pray in Jesus' name.